Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. So the way that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is we say hello to the people who are to our right and our left. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is by Barbara Wells. O spinner, weaver of our lives, your loom is love. May we who are gathered here be empowered by that love to weave new patterns of truth and justice into a web of life that is strong, beautiful, and everlasting. Now, there comes a time once in a while. When you just stop and you go, what am I doing? And if that ever happens to you here, we have a mission that could answer your question. We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation reading is The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around her with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idled and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? This is the time in our service when we enter into the wise silence, to use Emerson's word, the wise silence together. We close our eyes or leave them open. We go into whatever our best idea of a meditative prayer mind is, where we listen 
to God as we understand God or we listen to our inner wisdom or we just follow our breath as it moves in and out of our bodies. We use the time and the stillness to look over the wild tumbling of our fears and hopes and desires and cravings and attachments. We lift up our hopes. We look to send our roots more deeply into the heart of compassion for ourselves and for others. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, small baby noises and the noises of life count as part of the silence. I found a book by Oliver Sacks, who is a neuro, neurology doctor. Um, sorry, I don't know all the right lingo, but fortunately haven't had experience with those doctors yet. Um, anyway, he had the same injury that I did. And so I wanted to read this book called a leg to stand on. He got his hiking. Um, he fell off a little cliff and tore up his leg and got nerve damage. So it was just a dead leg. Anyway, um, he was, he was hiking in the fjords in Norway up near the Arctic Circle. And he knew that he had to get down off the mountain. But he was hiking alone. And uh, being a good Englishman, though, he had his umbrella. And so he, he made a uh, splint and came back down the mountain as much as he could on his bottom and two hands and one foot, just letting this leg kind of do whatever. And uh, he knew that if night fell, he would freeze to death. And there was nobody up there. Everybody was just tiny as little fleas down there in the valley. And here's what he said about his thoughts. Long forgotten memories, all happy, came unbidden to my mind. Memories first of summer afternoons, tinged with a sunniness, which was also happiness and blessedness. Sun-warmed afternoons with my family and friends. Summer afternoons going back into earliest childhood. Hundreds of memories would pass through my mind in the space between one boulder and the next. And yet each was rich, simple, ample, complete, and conveyed no sense of being hurried through. Nor was it a flitting of faces and voices. Entire scenes were relived Entire conversations replayed without the least abbreviation. The very earliest memories were all of our garden, our big old garden in London, as it used to be before the war. So he's remembering the sunflowers and the hammock, and he says, Much later I said to myself, What was that mood? And realized that it was a preparation for death. Let your last thinks all be thanks, as Auden says. So being near death was, 
something that he experienced without actually dying because there was a father and son happened to be reindeer hunting on the mountain and they got him um, back down. Oliver, Oscar, I mean, sorry, Oscar Wilde, his last words were supposed to be, either this wallpaper goes or I do. Another story about death focusing the mind comes from Flannery O'Connor, who was a Southern writer. Most of you know who she was. And um, her stories are fairly twisted. And it's interesting to read her book of her letters, her correspondence called um, Habit of Being. She thought her books and stories were hysterical. So keep that in mind as I tell you this story. There's a story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And it's, a, it's at the end about this serial killer named the Misfit who runs into a family. Now, the grandmother of the family is a terrible person. She's, she's the worst kind of snob and um, hypocrite. And anyway, you know her. You all know her. But the family's car breaks down and they run into the misfit and his gang and the misfit and his gang proceed to kill everybody in the family but um, while they're down in the woods getting killed the grandmother is talking to the misfit and she says oh you're a good man I can tell I can, you got good blood I can, you're not a bad man you're a good man I can tell I can always tell and he says no ma'am I'm a bad man And they have this long conversation about Jesus and about how Jesus raised people from the dead and that threw the balance of everything off and he shouldn't have done that. And, um, and she's just saying whatever she can say, can think of to say that'll keep her alive. And at the end where he, when he is obviously going to shoot her, she says, you could have been one of my children. You, you could have been my son. And then he shoots her. So then the, his friend comes up from the woods, the other gang member, and he said, man, she was a talker. And the misfit said, yeah, she could have been a good woman if she'd had somebody to shoot her every day of her life. <laughs> I'm glad y'all think that's funny too. One of my favorite spiritual teachers, aside from Flannery O'Connor, is Byron Katie. And she writes this that I think is just a bombshell in the middle of a person's life. She says, you suffer when your thoughts argue with reality. You suffer when your thoughts argue with reality. She says, fall in love with what is. Which means, don't torture yourself with, oh, people should be kinder. People should use their turn signals. (laughs) Anytime you hear yourself saying, oh, people should do this or the world should be like, or it shouldn't be raining right now, or it should be cold. Um, Just think, I suffer when my thoughts argue with reality. 
you're part of reality too. So you can do whatever you want to change it because you're part of everything. But it's interesting to inquire of your thoughts is what I'm thinking really true. People should be kinder. Is that true? Am I sure that it's true? I don't know. They're not kinder. So perhaps reality is how it should be. I don't know. I'm talking about death this morning and uh, the five remembrances of Buddhism. Um, In one of the Hindu scriptures, the Mahabharata, the sage is asked, what's the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life? And the sage says, I see people live their whole lives surrounded by death, and yet they do not think they are going to die. So in Buddhism, there is this meditation on your own death, and some people do it before every meal. Um, And some people do it unattached to meals. But it seems to be one of the two most important spiritual practices in Buddhism, meditating on your own death and learning to be kinder. The two most important. And so you think, well, meditating on death, that's kind of morbid and that's, you know, negative thinking, isn't it? Negative thinking. But the Buddha would say, just try it. You're not a bad person if you don't do it. You're not a good person if you do it. Just try it and see if it doesn't shine a light of death on your life. If you shine the light of death on life, you start seeing your life a little bit differently maybe. You start maybe making different choices. Here are the five remembrances. I am subject to aging, and I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and I have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do for good or evil, to that will I fall heir. So naturally this week I was practicing picturing myself dead. And I thought, okay, the world will go on without me. Nobody's going to just stop for any length of time and go, what do we do without me? I mean, people will be sad. And don't get me wrong. I want, I want so much wailing and gnashing of teeth at my service. <laughs> Nobody will be able to read or say anything. It'll just be, ah, I might even hire um, some mourners. But I... Uh, <laughs> I mean, in 30 years, when it happens, I, I hope there are mourners for hire. I don't think there are right now. If anybody wants to start a small business. <laughs> Most of us only glimpse this, this truth that continuity is an illusion and that security is an illusion. Most of us only grasp that truth um, in tiny fragments, and then we try to cover it up again because it's very uncomfortable. But, you know, everybody almost has had a friend die unexpectedly, and you go, what in the world? How could that happen? They're, they're here one day, and now they're not here, and that doesn't make any sense. But 
does make sense. And one day you'll be here and one day you won't be here. But we don't like to think about that. But it might be, um, I won't say entertaining, but I would say insight provoking to think about that. What would it make a difference in your life to think, um, I am going to be gone and my actions are the things that will be left. And sometimes I think, sometimes this week I thought, my actions, that's depressing because I should have been doing more. Um, Maybe, maybe I watched too many British detective mysteries. But also maybe not because resting is a, an action. Resting is an action. Contributes to your uh, brain health and your body's health. And so I think, okay, because I came from a family where you were not allowed to rest, really. That's not one of the things that we did. If you were resting, you had to be pretending to do something else and kind of resting on the sly. Um, anyway, I was about to go down a, a rabbit hole over there. But um, so your, your actions are positive and your actions are negative and you are downstream from all your actions. So if you're up there pouring toxins into the river, that's what you're going to be drinking downstream. And if you're up there cleaning the river and keeping it healthy, that's what you're going to be drinking downstream. Does that make sense? And so the only other thing is that you walk around in this world and you're being bombarded and, and battered sometimes by the consequences of other people's actions. These are the decisions they made about politics or these are the decisions they made about how to build roads or these are the decisions they made about how to behave in the world. Um, they, they decided to drink and drive and that's the consequence of their action. But you caught that consequence because they T-boned you in the middle of the highway and now you're in the hospital. It's, it's very um, vulnerable feeling to be at the mercy of the consequences of other people's actions as well as your own. And you think, I thought, well, where's the grace in this? Where's the forgiveness in this? But then I realized even in Christianity where there's a concept of grace, grace makes you forgiven by God, but it doesn't take away the consequences of your actions. And so in Buddhism where there's no sense of sin, you do something and then you are born, your future self is born of that action and all the other ones that you have done. And that when you do something bad in Buddhism, they don't think, oh, you're a sinner, you're a bad person. They just say, wow, that was ignorant. You didn't understand what would happen from that. You're struggling with a lack of knowledge. And perhaps instead of punishing you, we should educate you and help you in your struggle which I think is great. I don't know what it would mean for the whole criminal justice system, but I do know that would be pretty different. And, um, but for those of us who are not currently in the criminal justice system, it's, um, just a thought that you did something wrong because you didn't know what would happen from that or you thought you knew, but anyway, you're, you make a decision and then you're on the road of that decision and you take whatever consequences come and you can make other decisions to mitigate that decision. So if you are 
if you are a jerk to somebody on the telephone or on, or on email, for example, which probably nobody in this room ever has done, but if you find yourself feeling this, you know how that flame of righteousness just just rises up in you and you think, this person needs to be squashed like a buck. Um, if you don't put that aside and you follow through with that, um, perhaps you could later then email that person again and say, I'm so sorry. That was, that was a very jerky thing for me to say. Or um, even customer service, you know, we're so frustrated and you just get, you're mad already by the time the poor computer person comes on the line and you just want to be righteously mad. But you, you maybe, if you do this contemplation of death, maybe in the middle of that will have some compassion and say, I am of a nature to die and you're of a nature to die. And if I were to die after I hang up this phone, I sure don't want this to be the last conversation I had on this earth. And it says, then you're supposed to contemplate how everything you love is going to change. There's impermanence in everything you love. And even someone in my research this week suggested that you hug your children as they go out the door um, and think in your mind, this may be the last time. That would make me crazy. But see, I think, I think a lot of this is a very good idea. I just don't know how to do it without being crazy yet. But the, I, I need to forget about the possibility that something, well, you never forget the possibility that something bad could happen to your children, do you? It's always in your mind. I mean, any parent has lived through the death of their children many times. Every time they're 10 minutes late calling, you think, oh, they're in a ditch. You can picture them. You can see them. Oh, it's a burden, but perhaps if we, if we were to meditate on this, the possibility of, of the end of things, it would make us strong enough not to be jolted into terrible thoughts when a phone call is 10 minutes late. Does that make sense? That you're sturdier. You're sturdier if you schedule your own meditation on death. So, what does it mean, your heir of your own actions? Your actions are the only things you own. Does that make you live your life any differently? I think yes. I think it does. I think you think, first of all, I need to do something big. I need to do, I need to write books and I need to change the world. And yes, that is good. And most of the actions that we're heir to are like 10 or 15 small actions every day. Small actions. Like... Um, doing the thing you said you would do. Like um, being helpful to your partner or kind to a stranger. Um, showing up when you said you would show up. The church provides innumerable opportunities for these small actions. You go see Shannon at the visitor table and say, I'd like to help with the ushering. And she goes, fabulous. And then you show up on the day that you said you would show up to usher. Or you go see uh, Lane, who runs the, the faith development programs, and you say, I would like to be a classroom helper because I haven't been around children in, I don't know, 20 years. Or I'm about to have a baby, and I have no idea what they're like. Let's go see what the little creatures are like. And... Um, and she would be very glad of the help. And then you show up when you say you're going to show up. Or you, you go to the protest that you said you would go to. Or you make the phone calls you said you would make. And 
um, these are the tiny little actions. You you go up to somebody in coffee hour who has a red name tag because you know they're not going to say, I've been a member for 12 years. I can't believe you don't know me, which is our horror, a nightmare, right? If we say, hey, are you a visitor here? Somebody goes, I'm not a visitor. Are you a visitor? <sighs> About once a year we practice this, okay? So um, I'm going to say to you, Hey, are you a visitor here? And you're going to say, I've been here 12 years. And you'll watch me not die. (laughs) Hey, are you visiting here this morning? Oh, good. (laughs) I'm Meg. What's your name? I didn't shrivel and scream and end up a pile of goo like the wild witch. I think they're supposed to call her the wicked witch, but I always call her the wild witch. Anyway. So little tiny actions are what shape our lives. Little tiny actions are what make you who you are. And so we just have endless opportunities every day. And if you make a mistake, oh, well. In our house, we're allowed three mistakes a day. I don't know how many you're allowed in your house, but you can set the number any way you want. So you go, ah, I made a mistake. That was a mistake. You say something, and if somebody goes, ah, that really hurt my feelings, you go, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. Not, I can't believe that hurt your feelings. It's just as easy to go, I'm sorry. I'm going to end with another wonderful Mary Oliver poem. And if I'm accused of overusing Mary Oliver in this service, I say to you, it's her fault. (laughs) She shouldn't write such good stuff. This is a poem called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering What is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body, a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts 
until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. May the life I lead speak for me. May the life I lead speak for me. When I lie in my grave and there's nothing left to say, may the life I lead speak for me. May the work I've done. May the work I've done speak for me. May the work I've done speak for me. When I'm lying in my grave and there's nothing left to say, may the work I've done speak for me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.